what's my motivation on my post call? How am I feeling today? <laughs> The identification of specific products or scientific instrumentation is considered an integral part of scientific endeavor and does not constitute endorsement or implied endorsement on the part of the authors, Department of Defense, or any component agency. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the official policy of the Department of Army, Navy, Air Force, Department of Defense, or U.S. government. Hey guys! Hi! Hello! <laughs> it just never ceases to be jarring. <laughs> yeah, we gotta work on. I'm, I'm, I'm working on new intros, but all I can think to say is hi, guys. But you come in super energetic, and then Stuart not only matches your energy, but then tries to surpass it. And then meanwhile, I have a quiet panic attack in the corner. It just really we have to we have to do something else. Right. Well, gentlemen, this is another one of our I Am Power episodes. This is, we're going to be talking about becoming a PGY-3. No, it's not just the same as PGY-2 year. We'll tell you why, uh, basically, throughout the entire episode. <laughs> uh, but before we do all that, Paul, why don't you tell the audience, you know, what what is what do we do on this show, Paul? What are we doing with ourselves? <laughs> yes, I'd love to, Matt. Thank you so much for asking. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. We have three outstanding guests who are going to help us define and clarify what PGY3 year entails and why it's not just more of the same. And Stuart is going to tell us about our first two guests. That's right. The first of our first two guests is Dr. Kim Fabian. She's an active-duty captain in the United States Army Medical Corps. She attended medical college at Georgetown University School of Medicine and Internal Medicine Residency at the National Capital Consortium at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. She currently serves as one of two chief residents at the National Capital Consortium. Her hobbies include bowling and feeding birds in her backyard. The second of our second first two guests is Dr. Jeffrey Gray. He is an active duty lieutenant in the United States Navy Medical Corps. He also attended Georgetown University School of Medicine and completed residency in internal medicine also at the National Capital Consortium Program at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. He is currently one of two chief residents at the National Capital Consortium. Alternatively, he enjoys hiking, camping, and cheering for the Maryland Terrapins. Tarpins? Terrapins. What is it? <laughs> Whatever. No, just just keep trying. I think let's just do five five tight minutes of this. <laughs> Terrapins. <laughs> Great. And our last guest slash host um, is Dr. Joshua Hartzell. Lieutenant Colonel Joshua D. Hartzell serves as the program director of the National Capital Consortium Internal Medicine Residency at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. And that's a lot of letters. Dr. Hartzell attended the Uniformed Services University School of Medicine, graduating in 2002, and then went on to Waddle Reed Army Medical Center for his residency in internal medicine. He served as chief resident until starting his infectious disease fellowship. He then completed an assignment as the associate program director for the internal medicine residency, assistant chief of graduate medical education, and army intern director at WRN MMC prior to joining the Uniformed Services University in 2016. There, he served as the assistant dean for faculty development. He was responsible for the professional development of over 4,000 faculty and delivered over 100 faculty development workshops. He holds the rank of professor of medicine at the USU. He is a graduate of the Stanford Faculty Development Facilitator course, a Harvard Macy graduate, and faculty in the Harvard Macy Leading Innovations course, and completed a master's of science in health professions education at Mass General Institute of Health Professions in 2017. His academic interests include faculty and leader development. Dr. Hartzell is committed to improving healthcare and personal well-being by developing leaders. We met this wonderful crew when we went down to Walter Reed to, to give a grand rounds, and we're so impressed by them that we just had to bring them on the show to share their brilliance with everybody. So please enjoy this wonderful discussion with the crew from Walter Reed. It's quite a motley crew. Josh, Kim, Jeff, you're here. Thank you for coming and joining us finally. This is, you know, this is, uh, you had us down to, to Grand Rounds, to your place. Now we're having you to the interwebs to our place. It's great it's to have great. you all here. Excited to be here. Let's start with Josh. Can you give a one-liner to the audience? Describe yourself a bit. Maybe give them a hobby or interest outside medicine. Uh, sure. I'm a uh, 43-year-old internist, infectious disease doctor, army officer, and uh, program director 
who loves medical education and in particular faculty development. Uh, my real passion is uh, helping people reach their full potential and develop as leaders. I'm married to a rheumatologist with two kids, a nine-year-old son and a six-year-old daughter who occupy uh, all of my spare time. And I'm a part-time basketball and baseball coach. And I love all things Pittsburgh and bleed black and gold. Okay, pretty good. Kim? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a 29-year-old internal medicine chief resident married to a general surgery resident. And as a power couple, we like to host interdisciplinary <laughs> board game nights, <laughs> um, go bowling, and spend time outdoors. Uh, personally, I'm working on my deadlift, currently up to 110 pounds. <laughs> Which is probably, yeah, that's a, a good percentage of what you weigh, I'm sure. That's that's a lot. <laughs> that's good. Greater than 100%. Um, <laughs> I'm a huge medicine nerd with a passion for medical education um, and a budding social media presence. All right. Well, good luck with the social media presence. This this may help. Uh, we'll t- make sure you're tagged and everything. Jeff, what's your what's your one liner? Yeah, I'm not sure if I can top those, but thirty um, year old with a as the other two deep love of internal medicine and medical education, in particular improving medical education. Um, also a recreational outdoorsman and a diehard Maryland Terrapins fan. Um, which I've grown to realize is essentially uh, a cardiovascular risk equivalent. <laughs> and uh, you don't have to give us your deadlift number. I I, I don't want to create a competition between chiefs here. So yeah, that's fair. Yeah, go ahead, Paul. Sure. So let me. I'm, I, having talked with you guys, uh, you guys being Kim and Jeff, both of you have uh, this passion for medical education that I didn't discover until I think well past residency. So I'm, I'm wondering, why don't we start with Kim? But I asked Jeff the same question. Where, where did this come from originally? When did you start realizing that you liked teaching as much as you liked learning about medicine? Oh, Paul, awesome question. Uh, my love for teaching actually came before my love for medicine. Um, so started in uh, college as a reading specialist for one of the local um, elementary schools and really saw myself as a teacher. Um, and during the course of my undergraduate career, started to pursue medicine, but always loving teaching. What about you, Jeff? Yeah, similarly uh, to Kim, when I was in college, I was a supplemental instructor for an introductory biology class, which I really enjoyed, and then um, started teaching more as a kind of near-peer mentor during medical school. Uh, And then actually during entry year, uh, Kim and I developed an intern study group together and uh, really grew as uh, peer teachers and also learned a lot from our colleagues. So really since then, it's just continued to grow. This reminds us of a certain precocious medical student who might appear in our cases uh, later later today. Well, before we get into talking more about your love of teaching, uh, and there's going to be tons of, instead of doing our normal career advice thing, since this whole show is like career advice, we're going to jump into talking a little bit about picks of the week. Uh, We'll always, as always, we'll start with Paul Williams, and then we'll we'll go around and see if anyone else has anything they'd, they'd like to recommend. Sure. Sure. Thanks. Um, as always, I think I'm going to pick something that is completely non-relevant, um, possibly emotionally gutting, and mostly just an excuse <laughs> to, to find someone to talk to me about a, a movie. Um, this time around, I'm going to recommend High Life. It is the 2018 science fiction, uh, I guess kind of characterizes a horror film, directed by Claire Denis. It stars Robert Pattinson, who you may know from the Twilight series, but who has meanwhile evolved into one of our most interesting actors. He just quietly does these neat small indie movies now and it's i can't i can't even explain the plot to you but basically it's it's set in the unspecified future where a group of criminals are launched into space into a black hole to harvest energy and it's basically it uses that backdrop as a way to sort of just explore the human condition and it's quiet and kind of disgusting and but also hypnotic and sort of beautiful at the same time and it's just it's it's completely unexplainable and like most of the movies i recommend i just need someone to talk about it with so if any of anyone any of our listeners could could please watch the movie high life i would i would appreciate it paul i'm going to watch this one just for you <laughs> i cannot wait to hear your review <laughs> well it's it's really along the lines of things that i like to watch i mean i love sci-fi not so much horror but you know 
Stuart, this is we've never done this before, but can I request a pick of the week from you? There was uh, we we didn't have time on a recent show. You had a Twitter account or something that you wanted to request some some pun. It it, it is not my sock puppet account, Paul. It's <laughs> it's medical puns on Twitter, and I I I I don't know. It's kind of near and dear to my heart because it's just. It's just medical puns. It's says it's Stuart. Tweets. It's not me. <laughs> it's not me. And they it's only so have sixty-seven near, near my followers. Heart is, in fact, my heart. He's like, <laughs> he's like. In fact, if my heart stopped pumping, then the twi- well, account would no longer exist. Because- so, so, so here's one. Uh, what did the retiring cardiologist say on his last day to the first-year fellow? Keep aspiring. <laughs> it's not me. Although it sounds like something I'd say. Keep aspirin. <laughs> Keep aspirin. Oh you know? no, I got it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. It's not me. Does anybody? Can anyone else? Can anyone recover from that with a pick of the week? Josh, did you have something you wanted to recommend to the audience? I know you're always like sock puppets, reading, learning. Anything you wanted to recommend to people? Well, it's hard to top that. Uh, I, I would recommend. There's a book I read recently called Cul- Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. Uh, where the author studied what uh, makes up an effective culture. He looked at uh, the San Antonio Spurs, the Navy SEALs, a couple other organizations. And I think it's really pertinent to uh, residency programs as they think about how they're going to develop their own cultures or even hospitals for that matter. Uh, There's a a couple phrases in there that I find uh, really interesting, such as skunking, which is when you spray negative energy all into the workplace. (laughs) I feel attacked. Uh, <laughs> we have a different term for skunking. But uh, all in all, there's some uh, some very practical advice, uh, really just about ways that you can foster a uh, not only a positive learning climate, but just a positive culture in general. Kim? So I'm currently reading the book Quiet by Susan Cain, and it was recommended to me by... Uh, meta chat that I was participating in, really talking about the rec- the importance of recognizing uh, quiet leadership and the importance of thoughtfulness and introversion, which has been really uh, insightful to read. Do you consider yourself an introvert? Yes, definitely. All right, Jeff, what about you? Yeah, I'll just um, give a shout out to a book I'm currently reading, which actually rereading, which is uh, Every Patient Tells a Story which is a really interesting book about kind of the art of diagnosis and getting back to the bedside, focusing on the history, focusing on the physical exam to make the um, make a medical diagnosis. And it's really refreshing to me. I actually read it initially during the first year of medical school and now rereading it after uh, about seven more years of medical training, um, both to see how far I've grown and also just refreshing in terms of uh, getting back to the history and physical. All right. I'm going to skip a pick of the week. That's that's plenty of picks for everyone to dig into. And I'm going to ask Stuart Brigham to, to, to read us a case here. Okay. Benjamin Dunn, better known as Ben Dunn, is a rising PGY3. You, as a chief resident, uh, meet with Ben to discuss his goals for his final year of residency. In response, he says, yeah, I think it'll probably be similar to PGY2. I mean, it's, it's all of the same rotations and same responsibilities. How would you respond to that? What kinds of things are going through your head when you hear something like that? Wait, do you want me to keep going on the case? No, I think maybe then you could throw throw that question to a specific person since we have three. Oh, guests. yes. <laughs> yes. So uh, I'm going to throw it to the chief residence first. So, Kim, how would you respond to that? You just heard him say that he thinks it's going to be similar to PGY2. What's different about PGY3? Yeah, um, I think that we've all heard that comment. Um, and I think it's this is, in starting the encounter, a really important time and opportunity to reframe how people think about their PGY3 year. And it's not just more of the same. Um, it's a, this is the year where you're starting to build that identity of yourself as a leader, a clinician, and an educator, um, and really starting to grow in your independence. Jeff? What about you? How would you respond to this? Yeah, I would uh, echo Kim with a a couple of things. 
One, really, the goal of residency is to get towards progressive independence. And really, PGY3 years, that time to shine is, is really an independent leader of the team and really focus on uh, going away from that direct supervision from your attending and being a good teacher and a good leader uh, for your students, your interns, your residents, uh, your junior residents. The other thing I'll really mention is that you really set the program culture as a PGY3. So if you're on time, if you have a good attitude, um, others are going to emulate that and um, your program is really going to succeed. And the, the reverse is also true. If you're late, if you're disrespectful, you're really going to create a toxic environment as well. And so as a senior resident, you really set the tone of the program. Um, and then lastly, there's a little bit more free time, a little bit more wiggle room during PGY3 year to really pursue your passions, whether that's quality improvement, research, uh, or even something non-medical, like going on a vacation that you definitely deserve. So I think that there's definitely some um, some differences with, between PGY2 and PGY3 year, and I think those are three that I would uh, definitely emphasize. So Josh, he is, uh, so Ben is, he's, he's planning on meeting with you and he wants to get some advice for, uh, from you for the rest of his third year. He tells you that he's really wanting to become a hospitalist. He's been a star performer academically on all of his rotations and he thought about doing a quality improvement program or uh, he, he thought about doing a quality improvement project, but wants to make sure his clinical skills are as sharp as possible. He's also considering academic medicine, but has only published one measly case report as an intern, and he's not sure how competitive he would be. How would you advise him moving forward from here? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, when you when when we meet with our rising PGY3s, we really sort of uh, do a couple things. One is take into account where they're at academically and making sure that from a program standpoint, we help them reach any milestones that they haven't reached yet. Uh, that's sort of from the program side. And then what we try to do is partner with them and figure out what particular areas that they really want to improve on. And so for someone like this, who's thinking about being a hospitalist, we think about the hospitalist skills they might need, such as uh, teaching, or uh, if they do want to do quality improvement, and really, in, in some ways, actually coaching them to develop those skills. So ideally, if he's a third year, he could go through a quality improvement project, uh, get some coaching on that. Or if he's, again, thinking about building his academic career, how could we potentially parlay that quality improvement project into a presentation at a meeting or even uh, into a publication in some way to sort of uh, double tap the amount of work that he's doing? Matt, you want to take it away from here or you may keep going or what? I was just, well, I, I was just thinking about that. Uh, Josh, some of the words you used, I just want to make sure people are understanding. You, you use the word milestone and use the word coaching can you kind of tell people what what that that means? Because not a lot of this audience that's listening to this may not might not speak like you know all of us are in the world of of teaching, but I think we need to kind of define these terms so that they can follow along because these will come up throughout the show tonight. Sure. So um, for uh, all residencies, the um, ACGME, which is our accrediting body, establishes milestones that 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 we aspire to hit. Certainly there's a level of competence, but then there's aspirational milestones that we track uh, every six months throughout residency uh, with the goal of by the end of third year being competent in the milestones. And the the coaching question, you know, we sort of look at everyone gets feedback, but, you know, can we can we take what someone wants to do? So in this case, it may be run a quality improvement project and really sort of walk through the, a coaching model or we think about deliberate practice where we set a goal, we ask them to go and do something, we give them feedback, uh, we have them do it again, and we kind of go through this process uh, much like you would do with a sports coach or a music uh, teacher. Uh, but the idea is you keep doing these things over and over and getting very specific coaching on the the task that you're doing, which hopefully ultimately will allow you to be more effective. This was really made popular a couple years ago by Atul Gawande um, when he wrote the article Personal Best, uh, which I think uh, many people have read. If you haven't read it, it's certainly worth reading. Yeah, I, I, I hadn't heard that before you sent it to us. And that's that's why I wanted you to dig into the coaching thing. And what struck me, I, I, I imagine there will be some attendings or some people at all levels listening to this. And the fact that 
as a resident, as you should, you should take advantage of the fact that there are readily the coaches available to you. Because once you become an attending, maybe you're lucky enough to be someone around Josh who studies this stuff and is probably coaching his peers or creating that type of culture. But it it doesn't exist. The and that's what uh, Guande was talking about in that in that article. Yeah, I think it's uh, <clears throat> when I do faculty development sessions, I often ask the audience of of faculty, you know, when's the last time you got feedback. And many of them are kind of looking at each other like uh, when I was in residency. <clears throat> so I, I think it's um, your point is well taken, although I think there is a growing body of um, educators out there who are thinking about using coaching for faculty to improve uh, their teaching or uh, other skills. One of my personal favorite skills that I think all leaders should get coaching on is how to run an effective meeting. Yeah. Um, but I think just in general, yeah, coaching could be used at all levels, but in general, residents are going to have the most available coaches in terms of, you know, the educators who are already there teaching them. Yeah. So residents, uh, soak, soak it up while you can, uh, because it's very variable whether you'll get any once you leave the nest of your residency program. Well, and it's more likely that you get coaching if you ask for it, you know, because if you just assume that uh, someone's going to do it, it's never going to happen. But if you ask for it, there's there are mentors out there and coaches out there that would very happily say, yes, I'd love to follow you on rounds because, you know, uh, ultimately, as you approach kind of like the highlight of your career, you, you're you're wanting to actually make an impact on next generation's physicians after you. And, and that's one of the ways that you can do it. So I found it. Uh, I found the older physicians very receptive to providing that feedback, and then we, as you know, uh, early career physicians, um, we've got to be willing to accept candid, very honest feedback, and be willing to say, you know what, you're right. I didn't recognize that about myself. Maybe I could run rounds a little bit more efficiently or a little better, and ultimately make you a better teacher and make yeah uh, allow you to mentor that P- this PGY three who wants to be a teacher more effectively as well. I, I think we've got to be very honest and candid with ourselves. So maybe we can come back to the coaching piece a little bit later um, when we talk a little bit more about becoming becoming independent. And Paul, did you want to take us into the the next portion here? I I just wanted to, to throw one question there real quick, and and this was something that came up during my PGY three year. When should the resident uh, during his or her PGY three year? When should they come to you and say, hey, you know, I'm interested in this job or that job, or I'm interested in becoming a hospitalist? Is it something that they need to think about during your PGY2 year, or is it something that coming to you in the, the first part of the PGY3 year is, is sufficient enough to be able to get them on that path? Josh? Yeah, I think, you know, honestly, I think it's whenever they come to that realization, because it's different for everybody. Um, so I think if you come to that, you know, during second year, come then. If you come during third year or later in third year, uh, certainly the more time we have, the better, the more time we have to work with them. But I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, it's middle of third year. I haven't went to my program director. Maybe it's too late. I mean, we, we still have lots of time to work on those skills. So I want to, I want to maybe not necessarily switch gears, but actually touch on something that Josh talked about a little bit earlier, where you sort of set a goal and then try to achieve it. And I, it sounds to me, at least in Ben's case, that his goals are kind of nebulous. So we're, you know, you made it through second year and I made it to third year. So it's like second year, but just more so. And maybe, maybe be a hospitalist and probably I should be doing some research. Uh, it sounds like he might benefit from, benefit from some more concrete goal setting. So I, I think I'd like to, to ask our chief residents who clearly are goal directed and sort of moving towards things. How, how can we help Ben sort of set clear specific goals throughout his third year to kind of achieve hopefully his ultimate goal of actually becoming a graduated doctor? So let me let's start with uh, Jeff, and then and then I'd like to hear from Kim too, please. Yeah, I think it it starts with uh, that growth mindset, with really wanting to improve and and looking at what you think you need to improve with, and it also in terms of I know Josh mentioned working with a coach, but with sitting down with someone, going through your uh, clinical competency letter, seeing what you think you need to improve on, um, and setting some goals. Um, both on what you think that your CCC need, thinks you need to improve on to get to the, that independent provider, but also things you want to work towards, whether that's a short-term goal, um, like just doing a really good job teaching noon conference, or whether that's a long-term goal, like a quality improvement project, but really setting those goals and working with uh, a mentor to, to really be able to, to achieve those goals and have a clear path going forward. Jeff, could you tell people what the CCC is and what, what's their function? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in your program, you have the Clinical Competency Committee or CCC. And what that is, is it's a group of individuals that uh, look through your evaluations and compare them um, to those ACGME milestones that Josh had, had mentioned and really identify both your strengths and also areas that you can, you can improve on. Um, and you can use those, uh, that feedback in order to continue to improve and uh, continue to work towards that independence. So I guess I would ask Kim, as someone who has sort of transitioned from someone who's just sort of been recently helped by the program to establish and sort of achieve goals as to someone now in program leadership where you're helping others, what, I guess, what mechanisms exist to, to sort of help your trainees actually develop and achieve the goals? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that come to mind when you ask that question. Um, and this is something that definitely, as I've been furthering my career that I've been thinking about, but then also in the chief resident role um, in meeting with residents. So Jeff and I this year, we met with each resident individually. And in those meetings, we had them list out goals for the year um, and goals for their medical career. And in it, um, forcing them to take some time to think about um, those short-term goals that Jeff mentioned. Um, so one of the analogies in our program that we've used um, as running um, is, uh, so uh, we've got sprint goals. Those are your short-term goals. They may take a lot of energy in the short period of time, but then you've achieved it. You've got your intermediate time frame goals. Um, so the mile long goal, um, which may be publishing a paper, working on a quality improvement project. And then um, those long-term goals, so your marathon goals. And these, these are things that take long-term investment and long-term planning ahead. And there may be multiple short goals in, within the process that you're thinking about. So first, making sure that you're thinking about goals as far as the time frame for them. And then um, something that we use with patients in our clinic, um, and I think also important to use with yourself as you're developing goals, is that SMART framework. Um, so making sure that as you're coming up with your goals and when you're thinking about these by yourself or with your mentor or your coach, um, that you're coming up with those specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and then time-bound goals. Are you actually having people come in your office and, and you write some of these out together and you help them identify this is more of a sprint goal, this is more of a marathon goal? What does this look like? Yeah, so we have a we have a form um, that the residents get before meeting with us and fill out before coming with us that have the like three goals listed under each of these different your sprint, your mile, your marathon, um, and then as we're meeting, talking about what what uh, needs to happen or could happen to help them towards those goals, um, and how we as a program can help and. Uh, or identifying other uh, mentors for them. So I think personally, the, the one that I struggle with the most, and this is obviously me using the podcast to further my own career, as is per usual. So I'd like to ask Josh, the long-term goal is the thing that kills me every time. Even still, it's what would, where do you see yourself in three to five years? I am still stymied by that question every single time, even <laughs> when I know it's coming at me like a freight train. So I guess, how do you, how do you help people develop the longer-term goals? Because I feel like the short-term are, are pretty easy to come up with, but sort of the the ultimate destination for me, once I was making it to a doctor, I was kind of like, well, yeesh, now what? And I'm still kind of in that same situation. <laughs> so how, how do you help your learners and your trainees develop sort of longer term goals? Um, that's a, a great question. You know, I, I had asked uh, Kelly Skeff, who was the program director at Stanford, I think for over 20 years, uh, what, what he asked when he's mentoring residents. And he said to me, you know, I just asked them what they're really passionate about. And I was kind of waning, like for the next <laughs> question. And he's, he's, he's like, "No, no, that's it." Uh, and and then once I know what they're passionate about, then we try to think about what roles or what jobs would fit into, you know, that that career, that passion. Uh, I think you know some people. It's probably okay if you don't know what you want to do in three to five years. Uh, if you're happy with what you're doing, do it well. Uh, continue to sort of 
build your clinical skills. If you're interested in other areas, uh, quality improvement, other things, build those skills. And then you can decide whether you want to go the academic route or the quality improvement route or the um, uh, clinical administrator route. So I, I don't necessarily know that you always have to have a three to five year plan. Uh, I think it's if you do, it makes it much easier to then sort of lay out the steps that you would need to take uh, along the way. And we actually have a sheet we use when we're mentoring where it is basically a staircase and, you know, where you're at at the bottom and where you want to be and what are sort of those steps along the way that will help you to get there. But uh, that probably didn't answer your question and uh, solve your life problem. So, yeah, me specifically, <laughs> if you could just uh, yeah, Paul's like, could speak just, to that. Just tell me what to do with my Just tell me what to do. Someone, <laughs> please. That's my entire career is that question. <laughs> I, I, Paul, though, I, I will say this. We, we've talked about this before offline. You, I had I had the exact same thing where I was just like the only thing I had thought about was like yeah I'll probably get in life I'll probably get married have kids become a doctor and then like I'm like <laughs> all right now I'm 30 I've done all those things what the, what do I do <laughs> you know like then then I freaked out and then uh, the and then the answer was start a podcast but you know like <laughs> it yeah Kim you know Matt the one of the things that I think we didn't quite mention, but you started to hit on is the importance of those personal goals. So whether it's starting a podcast, having a family, um, being physically fit, reading books, watching sci-fi movies, um, that it's important, like not only to be setting those career goals for yourself, but also personal goals as we go along. Yeah. This was, someone was talking about this on Twitter, how uh, Shreya, our our good friend Shreya was sets a wellness goal. Like when she meets with her team at the beginning of like a couple week rotation, they set like wellness goals. Uh, she's very uh, very good about doing that. I think that's I think that's a good thing. I think it's gonna be my first wellness goal: setting a wellness goal. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk. Uh, let's let's talk about another big thing that happens. Speaking of kind of, uh, I guess this would maybe be a a mile goal, like a intermediate goal, the board preparation, or maybe I'm wrong there. Maybe depending on where you're at, I I started. I felt like a marathon to me. But uh, Jeff and Kim, what advice do you have? Uh, I hope you both did well on boards if you've taken them. Um, but what <laughs> advice do you have? <laughs> yeah, I, I can start. Um, I think I, I would call it a marathon. Um, I've never run a marathon, but it's felt for sure felt like that. Um, I think it's it's important to have a clear plan that really is tailored to your learning style. I really believe that one size does not fit all. Um, that being said, I think there are some certain things that are definitely guaranteed to provide success. One is uh, to do practice questions and do more practice questions and do more practice questions. Um, because really it's that recognition of those illness scripts that's really going to allow you to succeed on the boards because that's really what they're asking. Um, and I think it's important to, when you read the questions on those, on those practice questions that you're really reading, think about the answer and committing to an answer. Um, and then after that, seeing whether the answer is right or wrong and understanding why the right answers are right or why the right answer is right and why the wrong answers are wrong and the reasoning behind that. Cause that's really what's going to, um, that active retrieval is really what's going to let it stick in that long-term memory. Um, another thing that we do in our program is we have all the residents review the in-training objectives that they got wrong. So the objectives for the in-training exam, um, because I think a lot of times we really focus on what we're good at. So we're, you know, we really, I'm really good at, at this special, this specialty of this subject. So I'm going to keep reading about it, keep doing questions on it. Um, and then I'm neglecting those things I'm not very good at, but by focusing on those learning objectives that you didn't do well on and working with a near peer uh, mentor, if you're a PGY2, that's a PGY3, or maybe the, one of the chief residents and really going through those learning objectives that you missed on the IT exam to really understand what they're getting at. Um, and I think that those two things can really set you up for success for boards. Kim, any additional tips or things you found helpful in studying? Yeah, I think that's great. I just wanted to uh, clarify what Jeff was saying. So we like so our junior house officers uh, select a mentor. Uh, they're a young um, or a early career physician or a senior resident to help them through their learning objectives that were missed on the ITE or the in-training exam. And so they'll maybe do five a week of missed in-training exam objectives and come up with the answer to like 
how to diagnose uh, sinus tachycardia and then send what they learn to that senior resident who is now like secretly studying by reviewing those objectives for that second year while also adding more information to the second year. Like, oh, you know, because I've been reading and doing all of these questions, here's how they will ask that question and here's what you need to be thinking about. The only other thing that I would add is attend your academics. Um, whatever your program does, if it's morning report, if it's a noon conference, if it's an academic half day, um, I know just from this past couple of months with Jeff and I planning them that we're spending a great deal of time thinking about not only clinically high yield things, um, but also things that will come up on exams. And so I think a lot of people will sometimes say, you know, the academics, that's just not how I learn, but there, there's great value in it. Um, and so th those are the things, academics, reading study materials, doing question banks, like Jeff said. And with the, the, the selection of the mentor, is that based on good interpersonal fit or content expertise or how, how do the junior residents choose the senior residents as their mentors? The way we do it in our program is that the residents get to choose. So it might be somebody that they admire or that they jibe well with. Josh, you look like you had a follow-up to that. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think Kim and Jeff um, talked talked a little bit about this, uh, and, and they have also modeled this this year for our program. But uh, from a program director standpoint, thinking about how we teach to prep for the boards, uh, with the idea that we learn best when we do have to retrieve facts. So asking a lot of open-ended questions, really forcing people to commit. I know our residents, I think, are getting tired of us saying to bring their books and actually be prepared to write things down and answer questions. Uh, and then we've also done a lot of spaced learning. So the idea that we cover things during the week and then Kim and Jeff have done a quiz at the end of the week. And then we're planning on doing a quiz probably every two to three months reviewing that stuff as well. Uh, but this idea of spaced repetition, retrieval, and then comparing and contrasting the right and wrong answer. I mean, those are some of the more proven ways to help retention um, and ultimately meet your marathon goal of passing the boards. Yeah, I think we the the book Made to Stick is a good one The Heath by the Heath Brothers. They talk about all these things, like the more ways, and they I think they talked about the spacing in there where it's like, you know, you review it in a day, in a week, in a month, or or, or some, some, you know, number of spaces, and that really makes things stick more than if you just kind of cram and then you immediately forget it. Uh, Stuart, did you cram for boards? So I, I did not do anything that you guys just said. <laughs> <laughs> I I was a broke father of four, so uh, Mixap had this wonderful thing where you have 24 hours of access for free. <laughs> so in 24 hours, I did 300 questions, figured out I, I was fine, took the boards, and I passed just fine. But don't take my example. Please don't do that. It's not a good way to study for boards. So, some of us can do that. Some of us can't. <laughs> The thing is, like, I would read a question. I would just see the the keywords, be like, "There's the answer." Next question. There's the answer. I mean, it's just that's just the way my brain works. You you just reminded me. In case people haven't heard, uh, we did some clinical reasoning episodes with Gurpreet Dhaliwal. We talked yeah. about the the question. The prompt is like this problem representation of like, you know, <laughs> and then the illness script that Jeff mentioned is where you start to build this like idea of, okay, pneumonia, there's, there's, you know, there's a consolidation on imaging, there's fevers, there's symptoms of pneumonia, you know, that's your illness script. And then you start to build from there various presentations of it, but that's what you're, you're trying to match up. You read the problem representation, and then you're trying to match it to the illness scripts that you're starting to learn and build just in to case that go on. To be fair, I actually kept a, a case log and patient log during residency and and specifically wrote out my illness scripts during residency. And I wrote them out like once or twice, and then I was done. Because once you commit that to memory, and you know the mental gymnastics to get to the answers, I mean, I, I think it's pretty much in your, 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 your long-term memory at that point. So that's really what helped me prepare for boards was putting that down. Yeah, Josh, you were going to say something? Yeah, I would say too, I think you're right on. And we, you know, if you keep a book or notebook at morning report, and you just highlight or circle the things that are important and you go back through that a few times, 
I mean, that's as good as gold and probably cheaper than most uh, board study materials. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that's that's more effective than than the, the cramming at the end like that. So doing doing the mix app questions at the end wasn't really cramming. It was more just verification that what I'd done and validation that what I'd done residency was the correct thing. Let's, uh, Paul, why don't we, why don't we go on to kind of like the, the whole point of residency becoming independent. And I think, think we should talk about that a little bit here to kind of round things out. Yeah. So it's like, as we mentioned earlier with Ben, rather than framing PGY3 as just PGY2, but more so, or PGY2, but marginally less terrified, um, it's probably, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, or at least terrified of different things. Like now it's just terrified of the future as opposed to what you don't know. So maybe maybe it might be helpful to talk about the actual specific skills that you should be honing as you kind of work your way through the PGY3 so we can actually give people something concrete to work on uh, in this year as they transition into the next step of their career, whether it be fellowship or staff or or whatever. So um, let's let's start with Kim in terms of what, what sort of skills do you think that they should broad categories of skills that, that, that our residents should be focusing on in the third year? Yeah, so um, I think broad categories, so... First and foremost is you as a doctor and a clinician um, and the patient care that you've been training to give. We'll, we talk about how you as that senior resident are the leader of your team and the leader of your residency program. And so being a leader is a, another broad skill um, to hone and develop during your third year. And then Uh, Finally, I'd say being an educator. So if you're at an academic center or a community hospital with a residency program, you're going to be working with medical students, um, sub-interns. You've got first year and second year residents all looking up to you and learning from not only what you're teaching, but how you act. And so making sure that you're thinking about those three things, I would say. And then I might ask Jeff, so it, it, it seems to me the clinical skills, are, you, you, you tend to get constant feedback on either by passing the boards or your patients living, um, or even sort of on rounds, I'd like to do this, and then your attending argues with you. It seems like the how to be an educator and how to be a leader are a little bit less concretely taught, at least um, in my own personal experience. So I guess, why don't we start with the teaching? What kind of things can we do to sort of help our PGY3s become more effective educators? Yeah, I think that there are a couple of things we can do. One is to put them in the positions where they really are having those opportunities to teach. So one thing we do with our senior residents is have them lead a noon conference, have them work through the case. Um, and sometimes what we'll do is we'll actually videotape them um, and we'll go over those videos with them and then talk about, hey, this is a time where you kind of gave the group the answer instead of really trying to work towards that active retrieval and work towards um, having them get to the answer themselves. And so I think that that direct feedback is really important. Um, and then also um, encouraging them as a team leader to really find some topics that they're very passionate about and then work with the interns and work with the residents in terms of uh, those specific uh, teaching skills. But I think the most important thing is to put them in those positions to succeed and then have them do it, give them direct um, feedback on that, and then have them do it again and give more feedback and create the cycle where we're creating a culture where really the goal is to continue to improve and we're giving direct feedback about how to do that. And then I guess, Josh, along those those same lines, because I think this is something that you, you think critically about, and we've we've talked on the podcast before, but how how do you teach someone to be a leader? I feel like a lot of us think it's something innate, but what how do you actually kind of train and, and help someone develop leadership skills? Um, yeah, great question, and definitely uh, an, an area that I'm interested in. Uh, you know, I think it, it goes to to several things. Uh, first off, I mean, our, our senior residents and really our junior residents are leading on an everyday basis, right? They're leading their clinical ward teams. They're leading when they're in the ICU. They're leading the residency uh, as everyone is looking up to them. So I think they have a lot of experiential opportunities to improve, Ideally, if programs can pair that with a actual curriculum where they teach them about different leadership things, and then you can give them additional feedback on the skills that you're talking about. So if you teach them about emotional intelligence and then they're on the wards and someone blows up at a nurse, uh, you can talk about self-awareness and self-regulation. Or if someone is sitting in a meeting and rolls their eyes, you can talk about those things. Uh, If you're doing change management, 
there's specific steps and leadership strategies to being an effective change agent, which for a lot of our graduates, when they leave, they're going to go out and be expected if they're hospitalists to run quality improvement programs. So how do they do that? Giving them skills such, such as the Cotter model or start with why with Simon Sinek. Um, I mean, there's, there's so much you could teach. I think the first step though, is getting them to realize like, Hey, this is important and we want you to learn something about it. And then, you know, each program trying to do what they can to help prepare the residents for it. I think the, the challenging thing about residency, it's, it's a lot of people's first jobs. And if they went straight through, they might've never had a job and they certainly might probably never managed people before. Uh, for me, um, I I had plenty of uh I had plenty of jobs uh, like paper routes and cashier restaurants all that stuff but I never managed people I was terrible at it I still <laughs> I still think I have a long way to go and uh, there's there's lots of books you can you can read in this area I think just looking to people that have been fun to work for and trying to reflect on why is a good thing to do and that's I think that's part of how PGY threes can be a good example to PGY twos. Uh, sort of looking at who were the who were the senior residents I liked working with what did they do what what did I like what they did what didn't I like what they did and then uh, I think that's a good way to do it um do you all observe people on rounds other than is there is there a way we talked about coaching a little bit before in that Atul Gwande paper he was talking about having like a coach there watching him do you all have anything like that in in place so, so one thing that uh, we do, we try to do, especially on the wards, is feedback Fridays. So, our model is really that the the medical students and the interns are presenting on rounds to the resident. That the resident is is, is acting as the attending, coming up with a plan, and the attending is there um, in an educational role and a supervisory role. Um, and then, really, at, at the end of the week, or even more often, they're sitting down with the whole team, but uh, definitely the the residents and talking about, okay, maybe you could have done this better um, or this patient interaction could have gone differently for this reason. Or maybe, you, you know, we should get the team to sit at the bedside instead of standing over the patients at the bedside. Um, so really feedback based model with frequent feedback on a weekly basis. Cause really there's nothing more frustrating as a resident than, you know, get through your four week rotation and the attending sits you down on the very last day and says, Oh, I think, you know, this interaction could have gone better. Or I think you could have, taught this skill uh, differently. And so, you know, our model is really frequent uh, feedback based on interactions, based on observation. Is that, so that's a good, I, yeah, I think, you know, meeting with everybody sequentially takes a long time. Do you just sometimes sit down with the whole team and just like kind of air things out? Like, how's it going? I liked when the team did this. I didn't, is, how, how are you doing this for efficiency sake? Yeah, that's, that's a, um, a good point. So typically what I like to do and what I did as a resident and also what, I, what I've done as a uh, very junior attending is actually have the resident give feedback to the, the members of the team. And at the end, I'll give the, the resident feedback. Um, it, do, it is time consuming, but um, I think it's worthwhile. I think if there's, there's things that, I, that the whole team could really benefit from learning, then I, then I think it's good to sit them all down at once. So um, if it comes to getting the nurses involved in rounds or really working towards sitting at patients' bedsides, things like that, that I think all the team members could, could grow from. And that's some, that's an, in, you know, a, a time when I think it's good to give that feedback to everyone. But I also think that individual feedback is also really valuable. Well, it sounds like you're really explicit about it too. Like the fact that you've codified it and built it into it is great because I think a lot of the time feedback just kind of whizzes past. I think we may have talked about this before, but um, yeah, Daryl and Moyer would often say, you know, she'll always preface things with saying, I'm going to give you feedback now, because if you, if you don't say that out loud, it just kind of breezes past you, you don't realize you're actually getting specific feedback, it just feels like conversation. So the fact that you you build it in and are very explicit about giving feedback and, and make it part of the process, it seems genius. Yeah, I just might add that um, this year, we have a few of the residents who are going through part of a formal educational certificate with the University of uh uh, the Uniform Services University, which we are co-located with. And as part of that, they're actually doing a teaching practicum. So we do plan to go and watch them on the wards and in different settings, uh, observe them, give them feedback, much like the coaching model. Um, so we'll, you know, we'll see how that works. We'll report back to you. <laughs> Let me ask him. So it's it sounds like as your program, you actually have sort of um, – codified, and I think it's the second time I've used that word, making me super duper pretentious, um, actually 
having having the resident serve as attending and then having the intern serve as the resident sort of role modeling leadership. So I, I just I wonder if you can sort of talk through um, just explicit skills that you coach your your residents on when they're being when they're running pretending rounds or, or whatever the nicer term it is that you guys call them. Just rounds. Oh. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. She's like, thanks for condescending, Paul. It's just rounds. Um, <laughs> so the there's a couple of different things. Um, one, on rounds, it can often be people's instinct to be presenting to the attending in presence. And so something that um, I do and a lot of the attendings that I admire did um, when I was a resident was making sure that the medical students and the interns were presenting to the senior resident on the team. And that gives them the sense of, okay, they're talking to me. Not only do I have to pay attention to what they're saying, but I then have to answer their question about, should I diarrhease this person or give them fluids? Or do I do both? <laughs> Don't do both. <laughs> <laughs> um, sure. so, so putting that just in, in a physical sense and giving them that power physically. Um, and then as the attending, making sure that you're, you're forcing the resident to, to answer that question and not letting them, um, not letting them off the hook easy. So it, even in cases of uncertainty, kind of having them make a decision. And, and then if it's something where it's safe to go along with, going along with it, um, and and having them see how their decision ultimately plays out. I love that answer. The that that concept has only been recently. You know, I was talking to someone at a conference about it. it there, this there's some uh, this this gentleman had a whole lecture about like the attending being in the room or on rounds. Like everyone sort of just naturally. Like, especially if they look markedly older than the rest of the team, everyone just sort of trying that is going to be like presenting or talking or directing everything to that person. But as an attending, trying to like make yourself small on rounds and like not be front and center as much. um, I had never really thought about that. Definitely need to work on not, you know, on on like stepping out of the picture so that everyone else can shine and and do their thing. Um, I think that's a really great point. Um, Josh, you have anything to say about about this topic? No, I think Kim uh, pretty much uh, hit them all. The one thing that she mentioned just to to emphasize is the don't rescue the resident because very often I think the resident will look to the attending if they are there uh, and it's often easy for the attending just to give the answer. But I think just shooting it back to the resident and say, what would you like to do? Because uh, you know, uh, I think I think really the way that we get them to to learn is to commit, and even if you're there, you can get them to commit. So I think just don't rescue them when they're when they're trying to make those decisions. Yeah, and so I would imagine being <laughs> being in the role, even if you're pretending to be the attending, is is still would be somewhat nerve wracking. And I think that's why you have the tendency to sort of ask questions. So I guess when and sort of frame things as like, I guess we could do this or we could do that or sort of just pause and hopefully somebody will answer the question for you. So I guess I'll ask Jeff, how do you, how do you, I guess, how do you build confidence might be the question that I would ask when you're, when you're trying to sort of uh, build up the PGY3 as they're making the transition. Yeah, absolutely. I think it starts with recognition of those great decisions that they are making. So um, I totally will echo what Kim and Josh said in that um, going from the plan being in the form of a question, like, I think we should diarese question mark to, I think we should diarese, like this is the what we're going to do. Um, and then as the attending, if there's something you really strongly agree with and like a good, great management decision they made to tell them, I really agree with that decision. And I think that's going to build that confidence. Um, and I think if it's necess- uh, like a decision you don't necessarily agree with or something that you would do a little differently to really explain your thought process such that if a similar um, a similar case happens later on, then they're going to think through it and maybe make a, a little bit of a different decision. Um, and then when that other decision is made to really, again, uh, emphasize that, that you really agree that this is a great decision. Um, I would also uh, really emphasize the idea of understanding why we're doing things. So as a team, uh, one thing I like to do is just 
hey, this was a study. This is why we're you know putting this patient with heart failure in a beta blocker. And um, one thing my current resident uh, is doing really well is writing down any tips that I have and then utilizing them later in the week. So um, I think it's uh, as the attending really important to to encourage your residents and and uh, really tell them when they're doing a really good job. I don't think we're going to have time to get too much into quality improvement. I know that that's been mentioned a couple times here. Uh, Josh, is there any resources that you utilize as a program to teach people that? Do you have someone in-house that's an expert in it? Like what if residents are interested in that as part of their development is what resources should they use? I think uh, the the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI, is available to everyone. Uh, They actually offer scholarships or partial scholarships to residents occasionally. uh, And those those courses are are very well done. So I think that's a great resource that, that people can look to. And we, we've did a, we, we've done the career, uh, early career episode. I will say if you put on your resume that you, you love quality improvement and that you're facile, if that's the right word to use, uh, people love that. That is an attractive thing for employers. They're really hospitals and groups are really looking for people who are interested and have skills in that in that topic. So it's something definitely a way to distinguish yourself. Well, uh, that said, I think we should ask for take home points and, uh, we'll start, uh, Josh, your most senior, we'll start with you as the program director. Uh, what's, what's your favorite one or two takeaways that you wanted to give, uh, give to the audience? Sure. I'm going to, I'm going to talk a little bit about culture, which we sort of talked about at the beginning. So I think our, you know, as a PGY3 or rising PGY3, you set the tone for the whole entire program. And I look at those PGY3s in our programs really as the leaders of our program. They're the ones who do the most teaching and they recruit our next class of residents. Uh, And there's a quote by Simon Sinek that leadership is not about being in charge. Leadership is about taking care of those in your charge. So I think as, as senior residents, it's really about taking care of your junior residents, your interns, your medical students, um, and, and working uh, not only to help educate them, but just make your program better overall. Kim? So we talked a lot about how this PGY3 year is an opportunity to develop yourself as an educator, as a leader, as an excellent clinician. And in truth, each of these alone is an impressive undertaking. As senior residents, you've got uh, second years, first years, medical students all looking up to you, all coming to you with questions and looking to you for advice. Um, And that's huge. And it can be intimidating. This year, certainly um, with, with all of these increased responsibilities, it can be normal to feel overwhelmed or I don't know. Am I doing this right? <laughs> um, <laughs> You're doing <laughs> yeah. perfect. Um, and and um, it, to put some term like the common term of imposter syndrome to it is not is not uncommon. May even be normal for this PGY three year, especially as you start to um, envision yourself as a independent uh, clinician outside of residency. Oh yeah, no, I'm PGY what nine or ten now at this point, and I'm still <laughs> just still waiting to be found out. And I feel like I am on an almost daily basis. That's a great point. All right, Jeff, last word to you. Uh, yeah, I'll uh, I'll end with emphasizing the importance of a longitudinal study plan for the boards. Uh, so I really believe it is a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, my advice would not be to do 300 questions right beforehand, um, but to do I agree. five. <laughs> but to do five or ten questions. Um, and as Josh mentioned, comparing and contrasting the right and wrong answers, reviewing your, the IT objectives you missed, and really having a good study plan so you're not trying to cram at the end. Um, it, it's that stressful test we all know is coming at the end of PGY3 year. Um, but I, I think if you have a good long-term study plan, you're going to do just fine. For the record, I never said that my method was the best method. <laughs> <laughs> it was implied. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, could I add one more? Yeah, yeah, of course. This is overtime now. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe in the outtakes. Um, But just just again, wanting to hit on the importance of goal setting um, and taking the time now and at the beginning of the year and then throughout the year 
to, to set goals, both professionally and personally. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Still yummy. <laughs> Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for the show, Drs. Jeffrey Gray, Kim Fabian, and Josh Hartzell. And to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. And I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'd, I'd just like to remind everybody that Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham made this wonderful theme music that you're hearing right now. Thank you, Stuart. You're welcome, Paul. <laughs> Great stuff. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Good night. I literally was going to compliment you on how well we were doing with the read. I, th- I thought the energy was right. I thought we were doing good. And that just came crashing to a halt as soon as you got to the producer <laughs> line. <laughs>